This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Now we get into verse 10, which is rather an interesting passage. Here it is. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. Here is the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, what do you do with the protection of the Lord? Doesn't he protect the saints? And all you read is, when you go into captivity, but in captivity you go. If you're going to be killed with a sword, so with a sword you shall be killed. Isn't that fatalism? Defeatism? How do you explain? And then you stand at the door after a morning service and you shake hands with the people and the lady comes along and says, Pastor, how do you explain? Revelation 13, verse 10. Oh, mm-hmm. better ask my prof. Here it goes. The first two lines are loosely taken from the prophecy of Jeremiah. God sent to the prophet, those destined for death to death, those for the sword to the sword, those for starvation to starvation, those for captivity to captivity. Jeremiah 15.2 Jeremiah wrote this passage to the wicked people in Jerusalem and Judea who no longer could count on divine help and deliverance. God would no longer listen to intercessions for his sinful people, but was about to punish them with death, the sword, famine, and exile. By contrast, John addresses suffering Christians who are experiencing the scourge of imprisonment, the loss of life. He writes to encourage the saints in their suffering for the Lord. The sayings are difficult to interpret because of the variance. The first line has a variant reading, If you lead a Christian into captivity, you yourself go into captivity, which would fulfill the law of retribution. But a fundamental rule is that the shorter reading of a verse is generally to be preferred for scribes who are apt to augment a text. The shorter reading is, those for captivity to captivity go. This text is the stronger of the two and therefore the more acceptable as the original. The second line also shows variance. If you kill with the sword, with the sword, you must be killed. You find that in the King James and also in the NASB as well as the NRSV. And if anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, he must be killed. That's the NIV and the REB. The first one is active in meaning. The second is passive. The first one expresses the law of retribution, the tit-for-tat law. What you sow, you will also reap. Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, All who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
Matthew 26, 52. In other words, do not engage in active resistance by trying to defend yourself against the onslaughts of the enemy. Numerous commentators support this reading. And if so footnote number 17, you have quite a number. The second variant calls for patient endurance and harmonizes with the first line of the Old Testament allusion. The subjects in both lines are the Christians who suffer loss of freedom and loss of life. These two lines express that Christians experience hardships when the devil unleashes his fury against them. The lines are not addressed to Satan's henchmen who face God's retribution. Instead, the Lord addresses the saints and exhorts them to endure hardships and exercise their trust in Him. And again, quite a number of commentators support that view. But do Christians have to suffer passively without defending themselves? If this is the case, it seems that the evil one would have the freedom to wipe out all the followers of Christ. This is exactly the point, however, for Satan does not have this prerogative. (coughs) He can only do what God permits him to do. Christians must not take up the sword, but permit God to be the defender. It is not Satan, but God who rules on this earth. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32:35. We should also consider that the insignificant group of Christ's followers during the first century would not have had a chance had they taken up arms against all-powerful Rome. The Lord called them not to be active resist, not to... The Lord called them not to active resistance, but to patient endurance. The third line. Here is the endurance and faith of the saints depends on the first two lines and is a summary. It properly fits the shorter reading of the text. Not the persecutors and executioners, but the suffering saints are called to submit and rely on the Lord. They have been called to exercise endurance in the earlier chapters and verses of the Apocalypse, and similarly the faith of the readers has been expressed earlier. And now we get the last part, chapter 13. Satan uses the beast coming up out of the sea as the Antichrist and the beast coming up out of the earth as a false prophet. The one represents physical force and raw power, for he comes up out of the sea of humanity. The other stands for deceit, because he presents himself as possessing intellectual acumen and rational philosophy. The one attacks the external part of the human being, that is the physical body, with destruction and death. The other influences the inner parts of a person, namely the mind. The second one is even more fearful than the first. He is able to make the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast that came out of the sea. He is a symbol of false religion and fallacious philosophy. 
These verses clearly exhibit Satan's design to imitate Christ. The parody is evident throughout the next verses, the mention of the Lamb, the granting of all authority, the worship of the beast, the fatal wound that was healed, the mark on the forehead, and the name of the beast. And now verses 11 through 14. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. The second beast comes not from the sea of people as a symbol of brute force, but arises from the earth in contrast to heaven. This beast stands in direct opposition to everything that comes from heaven and is devoid of anything that is heavenly. He is therefore the aggregate of sin that reaches from earth to heaven, and as the false prophet he stands completely in the service of the Antichrist. The false prophet is mentioned three times in the Apocalypse, 16, 13, 19, 20, and 20, verse 10. He personifies secular philosophies, that is, the worldly theories of knowledge that influence the thinking and actions of the masses. His purpose is to set the whole world against Christ, God and His Christ's revelation and His people. Briefly, His aim is to be victorious in His endeavor, but in reality, as Revelation shows, Christ is the victor and He is the vanquished. And He had two horns like a lamb. Once again, John relies on the prophecy of Daniel. He alludes in the prophecy, in the Apocalypse, to some 27 verses from this prophecy, among which is the one from 8.3, Daniel 8.3. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns. The lamb in the male, of the male gender appears with two horns as symbols of power and might. He had not ten horns like a dragon, but only two. The number two signifies sufficiency in respect to spreading the lie and wielding authority throughout the world. The appearance of the Lamb is not merely a parody of the Lamb of God. It also appears as the embodiment of deception, harmless, lovable, and attractive. It is the proverbial coin, the proverbial iron fist in a velvet glove or the wolf in ship's clothing. This beast is instigated by the father of lies, and he spoke like the dragon. In the Greek text, the verb had in the preceding clause and the verb spoke are in the imperfect tense to indicate the continuation of an act that is the lamb, small letter L, all along was seen with the two horns. It kept on speaking like a dragon. The dragon relates to the previous chapter where he is identified as that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. The word, then, intimates that he can speak deceptively like the serpent who addressed Eve in paradise. Verse 12. 
and he wields all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And he makes the earth and those dwelling in it to worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. The beast of the sea had received delegated authority that he shares with the beast out of the earth. The first one demonstrates power, the second one displays propaganda. But the second should never be underestimated, for he enjoys the same supremacy as the first beast, in whose interest he works. These two anti-Christian forces are united in their effort to overthrow the rule of Christ. This powerful combination of thought and authority rules on the face of the earth and controls the minds and bodies of untold millions of people. Authority implies that the earthly beast shares the power and the throne Satan has made available. The standing in the very presence of the first beast, he has awesome forces at his disposal to attack and overthrow the followers of Christ. We read, And he makes the earth and those dwelling in it to worship the first beast. Everything on the face of the earth is to serve the interest of the Antichrist, the first beast. All the institutions of communication, all the resources of governments and administrations, all the educational resources, and all the commerce and industry must stand at the beck and call of the Antichrist. For that reason, the false prophet as the mouthpiece of the Antichrist must control and govern the human mind. This feat can be accomplished only when human beings turn away from their former allegiances and worship the Antichrist. The act of worship in the province of Asia meant to acknowledge the Roman emperor as Lord and God. When Christians entered a pagan temple and participated in meals offered to an idol, they were in fact participating in the worship of demons. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 20 and 21. The number of people who through the centuries have turned away from Christ to follow idols is definitive proof of the nefarious work of the second beast. The Antichrist wants all people to worship him and thus supplant the worship of Christ, whose mortal wound was healed. Together with the clause, he had the wound of the sword and yet lived. These words are a parody of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. The Antichrist seeks to imitate Christ with a semblance of fatal wounds and subsequent revival. But he will be thrown into the lake of fire where he, where he will experience the second death. Verse 13. And he performs great signs that he even makes fire to come down out of heaven onto the earth before people. The great imitator accomplishes miracles comparable to those done by God's servant. For example, the signs Elijah performed were marvelous indeed. He called to God and fire came down from heaven, burning the sacrifice and the wood on the altar and its stones, 
and even licking up the water in the trench that surrounded the altar. 1 Kings 18.38 And he called down fire from heaven to consume two captains with fifty men each. 2 Kings 1.10 and 12 Paul warns his readers that the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the works of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 The two prophets whom God sends forth to present his testimony to the world had the power to spew fire from their mouths to devour their enemies. God's people, however, should be able to discern the true prophet from the false one. God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites that they must reject the false prophet who announces miraculous signs and wonders for the purpose of worshipping other gods. This prophet must be put to death. The acts of performing false miracles and barring people from the worship of God go hand in hand. With their tricks, magicians incited Pharaoh to harden his heart and not let God's people go. On the island of Cyprus, Elymas, the sorcerer, tried to hinder the proconsul from worshipping God and his Christ. Magicians who performed the hoax of having fire come down from heaven tried to influence Christians in the first century to worship the emperor. By contrast, Accompanying the spread of the gospel, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Hence, Christians must clearly and carefully distinguish between genuine and false miracles and determine whether they come from God or the devil. There are unbelievers who are persecutors, and enemies of God's people, antagonists who face impending judgment, people whose names are not written in the book of life. The one who gives the beast from the earth, the false prophet, power to perform miracles is the beast from the sea, that is the Antichrist, who received God's permission to do so. John notes that these signs are to be performed in the presence of the first beast who desires to be worshipped by the masses of humanity. This is to be done by having the people erect his image by which he acknowledges their homage. Throughout the centuries, images of one kind or another have been raised, and people have worshipped and bowed down to them. They include Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, Antiochus Epiphany's altar of Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem, the attempt of Caligula to have his statue placed in the same temple, the statue of Domitian in the temple of Ephesus, the swastika of Hitler in Nazi Germany, the hammer and sickle in the former Soviet Union. John reflects the historical context and culture of his age in which Christians were formed, forced to participate in emperor worship the pervading presence of temples and statues dedicated to Roman emperors was overpowering for the followers of Christ in the province of Asia. Only true faith in Christ could keep them from succumbing to this pressure. 
The influence of the beast should not be limited to the end of the first century because its authority is worldwide, appears in numerous forms, and lasts until the consummation. John writes that the beast had been wounded with a sword but sprung back to life. Even though many scholars see in this verse an allusion to the legend of Nero who came back to life, the context of this chapter teaches that the reign of the Antichrist includes all eras. The spirit of the Antichrist suffers a mortal blow but comes back to life. Once again, this description of the beast that returns with renewed vigor is a caricature of Christ's resurrection. However, there is no comparison. The Antichrist lives to destroy life everywhere, while Christ lives to impart eternal life to his followers. Verse 15, And he was given power to give breath to the image of his beast, of the beast, so that the image of the beast might both speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Both the Greek text and translations feature the power of the beast coming up out of the sea. The beast out of the earth works behind the scenes without any means of his identity. It is the beast out of the sea that receives all the attention. Everything is done on behalf, on his behalf and for his benefit, for he is the spirit of the Antichrist. Giving breath to the image of the beast implies animation achieved by magic. Again, giving breath to an image is a parody of God giving the breath of life to Adam. Magicians, in the ancient world, boasted that they should, could make statues speak and move. Thus Simon Magus, the magician, allegedly said, I made statues move. I give breath to inanimate objects. God allows all this mimicry and gives the beast permission to kill those who refuse to worship the image of the beast. The Old Testament background presents the account of three young men in the fiery furnace because they declined to obey Nebuchadnezzar's command to fall down and worship the image he had erected. God rescued these three men to bring glory to his name. But the beast continues to send forth his accomplices to force everyone to worship and bow down before him and infidels who refuse to obey are summarily killed. Christians must obey the authorities as long as there is no conflict with the teachings of Christ. John indirectly implies that there may be a time when the act of refusing to commit high treason against Christ will be interpreted as high treason against the Antichrist. The mere fact of being a Christian is sufficient evidence for enforcing the death penalty and the persecution of God's people in today's world testifies to this grim reality. The text does not say that all the followers of Christ will be killed, but that as many as fail to worship might be executed. In John's day, the temple of the Sebastoi, that is the family of Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, was dedicated at Ephesus, and the local population was forced to pay homage to the emperor by worshipping him. 16 and 17. And he causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free 
persons and slaves to receive a mark on the right hand or on their forehead. And no one was able to buy or sell except the one having the mark. That is the name of the beast, the number of his name. The second beast not only executes those who worship, decline to worship the image of the beast, but he also forces all categories of people to receive a distinguishing mark that sets them apart from Christians. The expression all does not signify that every single human being is included, but rather that people from all walks of life are intended. This is clear from the various classes that are listed. Small and great is really an idiom that includes people of all ages, of all stations in life. This expression often occurs in the apocalypse. Note that the categories are presented as opposites, small and great, rich and poor, free persons and slaves. These are people from all the levels of society. And now the mark. The explanations for this word range from slaves being branded to people placing a tattoo on the right hand or forehead. History is replete with accounts of slaves, soldiers, and zealots being branded or tattooed. The verse, however, signifies that the purpose of bearing the mark of the beast is to be able to buy or sell merchandise. And that includes a much broader category than a small segment of the population. Some scholars put the sentence in the historical context of Caesar worship so that only those people who had received an ink mark on either their wrist or forehead might enter the marketplace. The difficulty with this interpretation is that Roman historians report nothing concerning such a practice in the empire. If we understand John to write not for a particular moment in time, as he reflects on a local incident, but for the universal church of all ages and places, then we need to interpret this verse more broadly. First, let us notice that the word Mark appears a number of times in Revelation. John mentions it in 14.9. If anyone worship the beasts and his image and receives the mark of his forehead, on his forehead and his hand, that is also, see, 19.20 and 20 verse 4. And in 14.11 he writes, Of anyone who receives the mark of his name. Therefore having the mark of the beast leads to acts of worship and the bearing of his name. It designates the person as a devotee and a true follower of the beast. It indicates a person who is hostile to God, to his word, and to his people. He or she bears the mark of the Antichrist on the right hand and forehead. Next, the symbol of the right hand means friendship and fellowship. It is a sign of working together in a common cause, namely to oppose God. The mark on the forehead implies that these people are influenced by the same philosophy and thought pattern. In their anti-Christian thinking, they glorify the beast and his achievements and attempt to destroy the work of Christ on earth. As the devotees of the Antichrist have the mark of the beast on their forehead or right hand, so the servants of God have received the seal of the Lord in the name of the Father and the Lamb on their foreheads. 
If the mark on God's people is invisible, I interpret also the marks of the unbelievers as invisible. And last, receiving the mark of allegiance to the beast is in itself a travesty to the pledge made by Christian baptism. Trade. The, in- the inability to buy or sell amounts to a boycott by which the food supply is cut off and starvation lurks at the door. The first recipients of the apocalypse could relate to these circumstances, for many of them in Smyrna lived in abject, abject poverty. But boycotts have not been confined to a certain place in history. They are common and in many cases God's people are their victims. The mark of the beast means bearing his name and number. And now 18. Here is wisdom. Let anyone who has in mind calculate the number of the beast. It is the number of a man. And his number is 666. God's revelation as it is presented here can be understood only when the reader possesses wisdom given from above through the Holy Spirit. Wisdom belongs to the Lamb and to God. But in the Apocalypse, the believer must apply wisdom to this revelation. Wisdom is not scientific study and research, but insight from God, which the believer receives by being in Christ Jesus. Twice in Revelation, John calls for wisdom. Here, and also in 17.9, he is the mind that has wisdom. The context of the latter features the beast of the abyss and the series of seven heads, seven hills, seven kings. With respect to these two passages, minds enlightened by the Holy Spirit are able to understand their meaning with the wisdom God gives. And now the number. Let anyone who has a mind calculate the number of the beast. Persons who have intelligence Enlightened by the Spirit will be able to understand. This does not mean that only intellectual people have the mental capacity to interpret this passage. Everyone with the Spirit's aid will readily see its meaning in terms of Christ versus the Antichrist. This involves calculating the number of the Antichrist. The verb to calculate occurs here and in Luke 14:28. Let the builder of the tower first calculate the cost. But how does one identify the person whose name and number is to be calculated? Solutions to this question have multiplied from the time of the early church fathers until today. Rulers, popes, causes and items have all been suggested. In the second century, Irenaeus called attention to Titus, probably because the Roman leader destroyed Jerusalem, but this church father refrained from identifying him as the Antichrist. He alerted his readers to the dangers of falsely assuming to know the name of the Antichrist. A common interpretation applies to number 666 to the name of the Emperor Nero. It would stand to reason that the name and the number of the man in the first century calls for a person with character of ill repute and the name Nero would qualify. But when did the writers begin to identify Nero with the number in this particular passage? 
There is no reference anywhere in history until the 1830s when four German scholars proposed a name. And now what you have to do is you have to go by way of the ancient method of counting. A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and so on. J equals 10, and then 11 is JA, and 21 is KA, so on. The name Nero by itself does not add, to six, add up to 666, so it has to be expanded to Nero Caesar. Next, if the spelling of the name is in Latin, Greek, or Hebrew, or Aramaic, the sum totals differ. Indeed, if we adopt the Hebrew spelling, do we include or exclude the vowels? If we take only the consonants of Nero Caesar in Hebrew, we come up to the number 616. But by adding a letter N to the Latin name Nero and dropping the Y in the Hebrew Yod, the equivalent of I, from the Hebrew spelling Caesar, the Greek form of the Latin Caesar is the sum of 666. Well, I, I have my doubts that you can do it this way. Because all you do is you try to achieve something. This calculation becomes particularly complicated when we consider that the name Nero Caesar must be transliterated from Latin into Greek, from Greek into Hebrew. The Apocalypse, however, is written to Greek-speaking Christians in the province of Asia where these hearers readily understand that they had to transliterate a name from Latin via Greek to Hebrew to Aramaic to understand the number 666, and the answer is no. Now, the method, and here's my method. In view of these difficulties, I opt for a different approach. John puts the entire chapter in the framework of symbolism so the reader may expect that the, numbers eight, uh, the number in verse 18 must be taken figuratively. The number 7 signifies completeness. 6 is incompleteness. Satan, the great imitator, strives to achieve the number of 7 but always falls short and ends up with 6. God fulfilled His work of creation in seven days. He told the Israelites to march around Jericho seven times with seven priests blowing seven trumpets on the seventh day. And He decreed that a Hebrew servant be set free in the 70th year. Satan, by contrast, faces defeat and divine judgment. In Revelation, the number six points to judgment the end of the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, the sixth bowl. Satan's work always results in failure. The number of the beast is 666, that is failure upon failure upon failure. Although the devil has tried to eliminate all of God's people from the death of Abel to the present, he has never succeeded. In this age-old conflict, not Satan but God is in charge. In conclusion, the number 666 belongs to Satan and not to one particular individual who did the devil's work in history. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that particular 
segment of Revelation 20. This is the segment that is the most difficult, thank you, the most difficult to interpret. It reads as follows, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Here's where we ask the question, do you take it literally or do you take it figuratively? And all along throughout our study of the book of Revelation, we have said the book expresses itself in terms of symbols. So this lengthy verse reveals at least three points. Thrones of judgment, souls of martyrs, and a millennium of living and ruling with Christ. Let us begin with the thrones on which God's people sit for the purpose of judging. There are references to thrones and judging in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The saints in heaven have the honor and duty to judge the twelve tribes of Israel, the world, and angels, and they will rule with Christ. Indeed, God highly exalts the redeemed saints by giving them the privilege of judging human beings and angels. This judging alludes not to the final judgment, but rather to the authority that the saints received to rule as the Old Testament judges did. John refers to thrones in connection with the 24 elders who function as representatives of God's people in heaven. They appear in the presence of God, around the throne of God, reigning with the Lamb and worshipping the one seated on the throne. They continue doing this and there is no indication that they are told to cease reigning. In other words, they are ruling on their thrones with Christ in heaven while Satan is bound on earth. Jesus promises the overcomer to sit with him on his throne. And this promise of reigning with him appears frequently in the Apocalypse. And then we read, And I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Let us consider the topic of the souls of martyrs. John is descriptive and precise in the wording, for he is not writing the expression souls as a synonym for persons, he refers to souls without bodies. He describes martyrs beheaded by Roman executioners. Their bodies return to the dust of the earth as souls to God in heaven. And these saints are forever with Christ. They are martyrs killed for their courage in witnessing for Jesus and proclaiming the word of God. The parallel of 6-9 is significant. I saw under the altar the souls of those slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony they were holding. Throughout the apocalypse, John writes the phrases word of God and testimony of Jesus. Are only beheaded martyrs in view in this text? Certainly. 
John the Baptist was beheaded for teaching and preaching God's revelation. James, the son of Zebedee. According to tradition, Paul was beheaded outside the city wall of Rome. Peter was crucified upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown from the temple. Surely, they are included here. The apostle John lived to the end of the first century, died a natural death, yet because he faithfully proclaimed God's gospel, Christ's gospel and taught the scriptures, he was exiled to Patmos. Page 538, third part. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead and on their hand, does this verse mention two groups of saints, martyrs and other saints, or only one group? That is, does it suggest two groups of saints, those who were beheaded and those who died a natural death? No, not really. Whenever John mentions the concept of martyrdom for the sake of Jesus, the context seems to indicate the inclusion of all believers who have been obedient to the Lord. John does not imply that faithful saints differ from suffering martyrs. Rather, with the one clause, he seeks to clarify the preceding clause. Satan and his henchmen do not exempt any true follower of Christ from oppression, hardship, and temptation. And last, all true believers are overcomers who are invited to sit with Christ on his throne. By repeating the reference to the worship of the beast and the bearing of his name, the mark on his right hand and forehead, John states that none of the saints has engaged in his worship and borne his mark. With this explanation, he includes all the saints who have suffered for Christ in one way or another. Abuse, banishment, deprivation, imprisonment, confiscation of goods and possessions. They have been barred from the marketplace and forbidden to buy and sell. We read, And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The third aspect in this text is a millennium of living and ruling with Christ. The Greek verb etzeizan, they lived, occurs also in verse 5 with reference to the rest of the dead. Besides these two occurrences, the verb in the singular appears twice more in the Apocalypse. The one described, the one describes the resurrected Christ in 2.8 and the other describes the beast who was wounded by the sword but lived in parody of Jesus' resurrection, 13.14. The same verb also appears in the parable of the lost son where the father rejoices that his son who was dead is alive again. The father states that his son, his lost son, has experienced a spiritual rebirth. Similarly, the saints have come to life spiritually. When the saints depart from this earthly scene, they enter eternal life. They remain without their resurrected bodies until the return of Christ. Saints live and rule with Christ a thousand years. But where is Christ? He is in heaven where he sits on the throne and rules. All authority to rule in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the saints redeemed from sin and death are seated on heavenly thrones and privileged to rule as royalty with Christ in heaven. And now five, 
first part. And the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were completed. This is found in parentheses. This is the first resurrection. Some translations, the NIV included, consider verse 5a a parenthetical interlude between verses 4 and 5b to express contrast. The book of Revelation is filled with contrast between good and evil, holy and profane, life and death. In this chapter, the souls that enjoy eternal life are contrasted with the rest of the human race, who remain dead. Notice that John devotes much attention to the saints who receive eternal life, but only one line to the unbelievers. God never grants the rest of the dead eternal life, They cut off forever from the source of life and are condemned to remain forever separated from God. The emphasis in verse 5a is on the negated verb to live. They live not. The emphasis on not. Which indicates that all those who have worshipped the beast and have his mark are devoid of spiritual life. Verse 5a is not speaking about a resurrection that unbelievers will experience. They are dead and remain in that state. Nonetheless, both the Old and New Testament speak about the resurrection of unbelievers. One is found in Daniel 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And the second one found in John 5, 28-29. Do not be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His, that is Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. John writes, Until the thousand years were completed, and intimates that during the thousand-year period until the final judgment, the wicked remain separated from God. When that period has come to an end, they appear before God at the final judgment and are consigned to the second death. This means that they remain forever cut off from God in respect to body and soul. The short sentence This is the first resurrection should be seen at the conclusion of verse 4. Where the enthroned saints in heaven reign with Christ. The first resurrection then is a spiritual resurrection. Much the same as the second death is a spiritual death. The first one means eternal life in the presence of God. The second complete separation from God. There is no doubt that the second resurrection, which John omits from his discussion, is a bodily phenomenon. And by comparison, if the second death is a spiritual death for the unbeliever, then the first death, which is not mentioned, refers to the physical death of the believer. Here's the table of contrast. Note, for the saints, we have the first physical death. For the wicked, the first physical death. Second line, for the saints, first spiritual resurrection. 
for the wicked, no spiritual resurrection. For the saints, third line, no second spiritual death. For the wicked, second spiritual death. Fourth line, for the saints, second physical resurrection. For the wicked, second physical resurrection. And now the explanation. We need not infer a first spiritual resurrection of the wicked without, for without regeneration they remain dead in the transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 2.13. The second spiritual death is in effect their eternal death since they are forever cut off from God's grace extended to them during their life on earth. The contrast is striking because what is gained for the saints is lost for the wicked. The saints receive eternal life, the wicked eternal death. Now notice these points. Number one, the first physical death of the saints results in their spiritual resurrection, which is eternal life. Number two, the first physical death of the wicked is separation from God who is the source of life. Number three, the first physical death of the saints results in their entering heaven and exempts them from suffering a second spiritual death. And that's significant. The Lord Jesus died for us on the cross, a second spiritual death, so that we are exempt. The second physical resurrection of the wicked results in their spiritual death. They are forever cut off from the living God. And last, the second spiritual death of the wicked is eternal separation from God. When Timothy McVeigh was stopped by a police on the highway. He was incarcerated. He was cut off from society, so to speak. And according to the then president, we have swift justice. It took six years. But on June the 11th, Timothy McVeigh entered eternity forever cut off from society and I add and forever cut off from the living God. It matters not how full the slate, how filled with punishment the scroll. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. These were the last words he spoke, quoting a poem of William Arthur Henley, written in 1875. He told the whole world, I'm not a Christian, I'm against God and I hate Him. And I shudder, to think what happened when seven o'clock 
in the morning, ten after seven to be exact, that day he entered eternity. That's physical death, and that is spiritual death together. Okay, now the positive note. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no authority. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. <clears throat> John writes the fifth beatitude. In the series of seven, this is the only beatitude that has a double predicate, blessed and holy. Also, in, it is a beatitude that is in the singular, but applies to all God's holy people. Holiness separates believers from the rest of humanity, for all the believers will be priests of God and of Christ. Note that with the words of God and of Christ, John places Christ once again on the same level as God and stresses his divinity. Because the saints are declared holy, they can never be subject to the second death. They will serve God and Christ as priests. And as kings, they will reign with him. In two earlier passages, John writes that the saints have been made priests. That is, they are priests in the kingdom of God now and in the future. He borrows the concepts priests and kingdom from the Old Testament Exodus 19:5b and 6a Although the whole world the old pardon me although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation The saints are a royal priesthood as they serve God as priests and with Christ rule in the kingdom 1 Peter 2:9 Upon leaving this earthly scene and entering heaven they will continue to function as priests and kings because their intimate communion with Christ will last indefinitely. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.